This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters— With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Coin Bureau podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. The realization was pretty clear that Ethereum was not fast enough, and it hadn't been able to scale up, basically, to cope with all the activity that was taking place on the network. And as I think we've said before, it became a victim of its own success. Welcome, everyone, to the Coin Bureau podcast. My name is Guy, and his name is Mad Mike Mooch. We are going to talk about Ethereum today yeah. again. Part four. Part four, yeah. And this is the final part on Ethereum. Because uh, final part that we're talking about it now, I imagine, because oh, yeah. I'm sure this story is not over. Absolutely. Absolutely. This story is just getting started. Mm. Um, but yeah, so today we're going to kind of bring Ethereum up. We're, last time we finished up by looking at how Ethereum was at the center of the ICO boom. That was in kind of 2017. That was all through 2017 and into early 2018. Uh, and that was involved hundreds of projects launching on the Ethereum network and raising money through these token sales, these initial coin offerings or ICOs, which was this whole new way of raising capital. And boy, did they raise some capital. I mean, we're talking billions here, if you remember. And yeah, it all got a little crazy. And we ended uh, last time by noting that the demand for these ICOs, the demand to participate, the demand to buy tokens was so great that at times the Ethereum network just couldn't cope with it all, uh, with all the people trying to use it and just kind of crashed or slowed Mm. to a crawl. And, yeah, so on the timeline, we're roughly at the end of 2017. 
Okay, so uh, speaking of Ethereum slowing down, before we before we kind of carry on with the timeline and and kind of what happened after that, I want to go back to a, a, another event that took place towards the end of November, uh, towards the end of 2017 in November, and that was uh, the launch of the Crypto Kitties. Hmm? The Crypto Kitties. I think we may have mentioned these in a previous episode, mm. but uh, for anyone unfamiliar... I'm unfamiliar. Okay, so the Crypto Kitties were... Well, they still are. They're still a thing. These are digital images of cartoon cats. Oh, so an NFT. Um, a range of collectible cartoon cats. They're all different. They, they have this range of discernible attributes. Um, they were called cat-tributes. Mm. Yeah, I, I know, I know. But... The whole point was these things, they could be bought and then bred with each other to what? create new ones. Yeah, so you buy these NFTs um, and you'd create a new NFT, a new crypto kitty, which would like be a Like a kitty litter. Yeah, something like that. Something like that. And depending on the two kitties you bred together, the other one would come out with sort of certain characteristics. So it's kind of like it's Tamagotchi 3.0. Tamagotchi is a good, good, um, yeah, good reference point. I think it's kind of it's kind of similar, but all on the blockchain, all virtually. These people started buying, collecting, breeding these cats. Um, and I should point out that obviously all these actions. So in order to buy one of these NFTs, in order to breed it, in order to trade it, whatever, you needed ETH, mm. the native currency of Ethereum. So this was obviously a big kind of demand driver for the ETH coin. And yeah, these are one of the earliest examples of NFTs, non-fungible tokens. And each CryptoKitty was represented as an NFT on the Ethereum blockchain. So a quick recap on NFTs for anyone who is still catching up. An NFT basically acts as a digital certificate of ownership that's recorded and traceable, trackable on the blockchain. Uh, we discussed these, maybe it was one episode or two episodes yeah. ago. Anyhow, and we'll talk about NFTs a lot more in future. Non-fungible, as we said, basically means unique, not interchangeable with other tokens. Kind of fiat money, if you like, is fungible. One pound is equal to another pound. So the CryptoKitties, they weren't the first NFTs, but they were the first collection of them to gain wide attention. They are many people's, most people's kind of starting point mm. for the whole NFT. Board Ape seems to be like the, the latest sort of yeah. major sort of well-known one. Yeah, the Board Ape Yacht Club is... Oh, is that the thing, is a yacht yeah, club? Yeah, at the time of speaking, the Board Ape Yacht Club is the, is the kind of big name in NFTs and you can't you can't move for board apes at the moment. And actually, uh, so these crypto kitties, they were so popular. They really caught the imagination so much. So many people were trading and breathing them that the Ethereum network became severely congested. And yeah, they're they're a big early milestone in the development of NFTs and a kind of a, 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 an early indication of how big this kind of this kind of niche was going to become. Yeah. Uh, and this is a good example of people basically finding a use for Ethereum. I don't know if Vitalik had envisioned this or anything like this when he created it, but it's a it's a perfect example of a group of developers, a group of people looking at Ethereum going, what can we do here? Okay, why don't we try this? Digital collectibles, everyone, you know, they're all different, blah, 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 blah. They created a, they created a new type of token, uh, what was called an ERC-721 token, if I remember rightly, uh, in order to represent these, these NFTs on the blockchain. Um, and yeah, they were a big old deal, and they're still going. I mean, then they've been, as you point out, they've been kind of overtaken by more the the, the latest, more hip. recent, yeah, the, the latest, the latest fad. But yeah, crypto kitties were were a big the deal. OG. The OG NFT, if you want to squeeze some acronyms in, and yeah, we'll we'll talk about NFTs a bit more later on. Um, so late 2017, uh, it also saw Vitalik persuaded to eventually fire uh, Ming Chan, who is the director, the executive director of the Ethereum Foundation. And if you remember, she'd kind of she'd come on Robot board. And, yeah, she'd upset a lot of people. Mm. She, she had a very sort of weird style of management. And her behavior was a little bit erratic. Um, but it wasn't actually until January 2018 that she was sort of finally ushered out the door and she was replaced by someone called Aya Miyaguchi uh, who had previously worked at Kraken which is well was then and is now a big cryptocurrency exchange based in the US. 
So the Ethereum Foundation had this new executive director who I think uh, worked a lot better with Vitalik and was and was just you know a lot a better fit for the role. So this kind of closes a chapter Ming Ming Chan's departure. And what it meant was that Vitalik was by now the only one of the original Ethereum founders still on board. Uh, Ming Chan wasn't an, an actual founder, but she'd been there for quite a while. All the other founders had either been fired or kind of pushed out the door or just left to kind of go off and do their own thing. So mm. Vitalik was the only one left. Highlander. Highlander. Yeah, there can be only one. Um, and so now uh, let's move into 2018. So as we saw late 2017 and even early 2018, it was just crazy. As I said, prices were going crazy. Ethereum was touching its all-time high, Bitcoin too, all these ICOs. Everyone was talking about crypto. And obviously this this couldn't last. What goes up must come down. And the warning signs had actually been appearing in 2017. Um, in September, if I remember, uh, China ordered all crypto exchanges to shut down. And this is uh, China is a kind of recurring theme in these in these years of crypto. It's like China would decide that it was going to crack down on crypto a little bit harder, and the rest and the market would tank as a result. So September 2017, China ordered all crypto exchanges to shut down, which obviously made it very difficult for Chinese uh, people to get their hands on crypto. And um, this was a, a warning sign. And then on uh, December the 11th, I think it was in the US, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission, issued uh, a cease and desist order against uh, an ICO project. And th they accompanied it with a press release um, saying that the project had been selling unregistered securities. Now this was bad because, unre you know, selling securities without a license um, is a big no-no in America. Yeah, you can you can you can do some pretty good bird uh, for doing that, and yeah, this was this was not good news because this is something um, that still is still kind of hanging over the whole industry. We're seeing this at the moment with the SEC's case against Ripple, Ripple yeah. um, where it's saying that it sold XRP as an unregistered security. That case is still not resolved, you know, in, in well into its second year now. And, yeah, we still haven't got uh, not even an end in sight, really. Maybe the end of 2022, but who knows. So late December... Uh, 2017, Bitcoin reached just below 20K, which was an all-time high, and then it crashed big time. And ETH uh, continued pumping into the new year, into 2018, and it hit its all-time high of just over $1,400 on the 13th of January, and then it did the same thing. And this coincided with regulators in the US and elsewhere deciding, right, this has gone far enough. We're going to crack down on crypto. As you can, I guess you can imagine, really, given everything that had been going on, the, the crazy money being raised by these ICOs. And obviously, sadly, many ICOs turned out to be scams, really. So, you know, people quickly cottoned on that this, this thing was so hot, this sector was so hot. All you needed to do was come up with a fancy... Name, I, idea. Name, idea pitch maybe a website not not always a website like some <laughs> some of them would just like you know y y you'd think how on earth would anyone fall for this but people did because that's what happens when there's a gold rush yeah yeah people are just scrambling over themselves to invest in you know whatever comes their way so obviously people were lots of people were losing a lot of money and that is attract that is bound to attract the attention of the regulators, and I mean, you know, people like the people like the SEC. Their job is uh, protecting investors, so they kind of had to step in. So, um, ICO fraudsters started getting arrested when they could actually be found. Plenty kind of disappeared without trace and were never seen again. And in January 2018, the BitConnect Ponzi scheme, uh, which had been huge, um, that imploded in January. Investors lost over $2 billion in it. Mm. It was, oh, God. Yeah, I remember it. I remember it pretty well. And it was it was a terrible time because, yeah, I mean, this this the BitConnect thing had uh, had promised investors these crazy returns. And there's some just bizarre footage. They had a they had a conference. They had a big BitConnect event and they had this guy called Carlos Matos on the stage who was just 
crazy. And this footage, if you type in BitConnect into YouTube or something, you'll see this guy, and it's just him, like, just going mental on stage. And, and he eventually kind of ends it by shouting, BitConnect! It's, it's just... Wow. You know, you look at it and you think, anyone anyone new to crypto at that precise moment in time, you could forgive them for just walking away and never having anything to do with it again. You're just like... Is it worse than that Microsoft dance? When the when Ooh. Bill Gates and Co were like, <laughs> was it Windows ninety eight or something like that, and they're they're unveiling it on stage and they're all dancing like the Rolling Stones dads. Yeah, I think. Well, I don't think Windows ninety five was necessarily a Ponzi scheme, but no. um, yeah, I, yeah. It's, but which is more cringy is still debatable. Um, yeah. So there were also uh, there were also concerns over Tether around this time as well. Tether, we've I think we've touched on it before. This is the company which issues USDT which is the biggest stablecoin on the market mm. still. It was then, it is now. As well as Tether's sister company, the Bitfinex Exchange. There were lots of questions. People were kind of looking into what was going on with, their, with them. And the US uh, Commodity Futures Trading Commission, the CFTC, was revealed to be investigating both companies in 2018. So again, not a good look for the industry as a whole. And there are actually ongoing concerns. Uh, basically, that there, there are concerns around USDT, mostly centered on the fact that what assets are actually backing this? Yeah, like you're printing all these, you're printing all these stable coins. Where's the money? Yeah, like you, you know, where's the money? How are you operating as a business? Yeah. If uh, if you know. Yeah. It's not backed by gold or actual dollars. Yeah. Can we please can we please have a look at your books and and. Yeah, even today. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Maybe oh. late. Maybe not. Oh, I've, I think I've lost the books. <laughs> think, What's a book? <laughs> I think I just dropped one of the books into the North Sea. Yeah. Um, anyhow, yes. So even today, there are still concerns about what assets are actually backing Tether, are actually backing USDT. Um, yeah, pretty worrying. Anyway, in short, uh, 2017 was the party and 2018 was the hangover. And <laughs> That's a great description. Thanks. I just just it just came to me. So 2018, 2019 is kind of is often described now as crypto winter. Winter is coming. Mm. Uh, well, yeah, winter came to crypto. Many projects went to the wall. Um, those that didn't, their prices took a massive tumble, including Ethereum for Bitcoin. Yeah, Isn't well, that, I remember that. Yeah, I mean, ETH went down to around eighty dollars when you consider it was fourteen hundred at one point. I mean, people would have bought in at fourteen hundred, mm. and yeah, that that that's a that's a heck of a ride down to eighty. Um, so yeah, and as you can imagine, sort of interest, general interest in crypto, it just dropped off a cliff. Because either people had lost money or they'd heard about people losing money. And so there wasn't really much, you know, there weren't many new people coming into the space. And again, I remember that sort of time. And I mean, I remember thinking, I, I remember believing that it would, that it, this wasn't the end. But it was kind of hard to, it was kind of hard to believe yourself sometimes during that time. It was, um, it was, it was difficult because, yeah, you, you, you were sort of, convincing yourself that yeah this is this is going to recover things are going to get better and then you you, know, you check the charts and it's fallen another god knows how many percent it's like yeah but that said there was still development going on um but obviously with the sense that the boom was most definitely over so it was a, it was a tricky time but uh, this time um also began to see the emergence of so-called ethereum killers too mm. on that note should we take a break Sure. You know how much I like a cliffhanger. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives. But those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. 
If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to, to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome back. Yeah. Should we give should we talk about some good news that Ethereum had in 2018? No. <laughs> so you want to keep more doom and gloom. Keep yeah. going with the negativity. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, go on. Give us, give us good news. Okay, so there was some good news for Ethereum in 2018. In June, uh, Bill Hinman, who was a director at the SEC, he stated that he believed ETH was not a security because it was quote sufficiently decentralized. And he also said the same about uh, Bitcoin, about BTC as well. Now, this was this is good news because it meant that there weren't necessarily any any barriers to, you know, to American investors um, buying into to ETH or, or Bitcoin. So that's an important that's an important point to note. Other than that, um, it's Ethereum had a lot of problems facing it and not least the emergence of rival smart contracts platforms. So these are often referred to as the Ethereum killers because they all aim to basically replace Ethereum or you know take some of its market share by being faster or more decentralized or more secure or ideally all three. Uh, and they all kind of promise this to a greater or lesser degree. And there are absolutely tons of so-called Ethereum killers now. And some of them are, are, are really big projects, but none has yet come close to toppling Ethereum. And to be honest, I think it's fairly unlikely that any will anytime soon. 
Um, but we'll talk about these. We'll talk about these a bit towards the end of the episode as well. But a few examples. I mean, the Tezos, which we mentioned when we talked about ICOs, uh, that's one uh, one example of a kind of rival to Ethereum. EOS. Now, EOS held a year long ICO. Uh, it ran from June 17 to June 18, and it raised 4.2 billion dollars. Absolutely Jesus. insane. Uh, the guy, uh, the a guy, tenth of Twitter. A tenth. Yeah, they could could have bought could have bought themselves a little, just a little, a little slice of Twitter little, for that. Yeah, it's extraordinary. A tea. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, the guy, uh, the guy behind it was this chap Dan Larimer, whose name has come up before. He worked with Charles Hoskinson, who was. Um, one of the uh, one of the co uh, Ethereum sort of early CEO before he was booted out at the Game of Thrones night that they had. Um, EOS is extraordinary. No one is really able to tell what they did with this four point two billion dollars. Not a lot, by the sound of it. It's is it, is it all gone now? Well, EOS is still going. It's still a top one hundred crypto, but not a lot has happened. Um, yeah. We'll talk about EOS another time. Uh, another example is Cardano, which was Charles yeah, Hoskinson's yeah. project. Uh, Tron is another one. Um, there are newer ones now. Solana, which is currently the fastest or one of the fastest out there. And Avalanche, which uh, Emin Gunsira, uh, who we talked about before, uh, he started. Phantom's another one. There are, there are absolutely loads. Um, and, of course, there's Gavin Wood's uh, Polkadot. That's another competitor. Polkadot is structured, is seen as an Ethereum competitor. It's structured in a slightly different way from some of these other smart contract chains, Ethereum included. It's actually structured more in the way that Ethereum will eventually become. Okay. And is this with the update to Ethereum? Yeah, okay. exactly, which we'll talk about shortly. Um, one of kind which is of, not called 2.0. Well, you, ooh, yeah, yeah, it, it is, but we're not allowed to call it 2.0. Okay. Yeah, it gets complicated. Okay. No uh, one said this crypto business was easy. No. <laughs> Sorry, I keep derailing this. <laughs> Crack on. Um, one of Gavin's kind of, one of Gavin's reasons for, you know, for, for moving on from Ethereum, even though he was kind of moved on. Yeah. Um, he, he he designed and built Polkadot to, to become, to, to fulfill the promises Ethereum could not. I think that's... Sort of, His statement. Yeah, something along those lines. Anyhow, now Ethereum, one of the reasons that all these other smart contract platforms, all these Ethereum killers in inverted commas sprang up was because Ethereum itself was pretty slow. It can, well, it still can only process around 15, one, five transactions per second, which, as we've seen, is not very many. And remember that Ethereum uses a proof of work blockchain like Bitcoin's. Uh, newer smart contract blockchains made use of another consensus method, which is known as proof, proof of stake. stake. Yeah, we, we have talked about proof yeah. of stake before. I want to go over it a little bit in, in a moment or so, because it's really relevant to, to the next stage of Ethereum. Um, now, most these other smart contract blockchains have now become more commonly known as layer ones. OK, because they're the, you know, they're the layer that you build everything else on top. And these have much greater uh, what we call TPS scores, transactions per second. They can, tr they can process a lot more transactions per second. But few of them really, if any, are as decentralized as Ethereum. And sometimes when you dig into, when you dig into the nuts and bolts of one of these projects, you find out that although they claim to be very decentralized, there's only, you know, sometimes just not even, you know, a, may maybe a couple of hundred validators which are kind of the same as equivalent to miners mm. sometimes there are only you know maybe 150 or 200 odd validators on the network and you think okay that's that's more decentralized boring. than you know than one but that's not it's it's not impenetrable you know like it's yeah. it's, it's it, you can pressure that you can change yeah uh, 150 people's uh, mind by yeah when you consider how, when you consider there are thousands, tens of thousands of both nodes and miners, you know, combined on the uh, on on the Bitcoin network and Ethereum as well. There are lots of people running Ethereum nodes, thousands and thousands, uh, and also plenty of Ethereum miners too, uh, for the time being at least. You know that is that is true, truly true decentralization. Having you know a couple of hundred is it ain't the same. It ain't decentralized. Yeah. So. Um, the realization was pretty clear that Ethereum was not fast enough and it hadn't been able to scale up, basically, to cope with all the activity that was taking place on the network. And as I think we've said before, it became a victim of its own success. 
So Vitalik, being the massively in- intelligent chap that he was, had kind of realized this for a while. And by 2018, had already begun working working on fixing it. So he wasn't he wasn't resting on his laurels. And so this is where the this is where Ethereum 2.0 comes. Don't call it that. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're gonna call, I'm gonna refer to it as Ethereum 2.0 for now, and then I for <laughs> and then I will uh, and then I will reveal why we can't okay. call it Ethereum 2.0. This is a command from from on high. So. In a nutshell, as we record this and in, in mid-2022, Ethereum is in the midst of transitioning from its current proof-of-work blockchain to become a proof-of-stake blockchain. Okay, so I think, firstly, we need a quick recap of what proof-of-stake is. Yeah. For anyone who missed that episode or just and wasn't paying attention. And potentially me, who may have forgotten. And potentially <laughs> who I saw the information go in one ear and just dribble out the other. Okay, so... As we know, a proof-of-work blockchain has miners and they expend energy in the form of computing power in order to win the chance to create a block and add it to the blockchain. And of course, the winning miner in that situation gets the block reward as remuneration for their efforts. And I should point out as well that proof-of-work miners, they also get paid transaction fees as well. That's an added incentive for for doing the work that they do. But the block reward is, is kind of the big headline grabber. Now, we've looked at this in detail before, but suffice to say that a proof-of-work chain is very secure because you would need to expend an insane amount of energy to try and corrupt it, uh, certainly in Bitcoin's case. And probably that, that energy would probably cost more than you'd actually gain financially from, from corrupting the network, assuming that the network didn't, you know, that the Bitcoin itself didn't go to zero because everyone realized it had been corrupted. But Anyway, so Bitcoin's blockchain is also super decentralized because there are so many miners on the network and because there are so many nodes as well who who aren't miners, but do, um, you know, they do run the Bitcoin software. So they are participating on the network. Now, there are disadvantages, though, because obviously uh, proof of work blockchain is extremely expensive. It chews up a lot of energy and it is now very expensive to become a Bitcoin miner because your electricity bill is insane and you need lots of expensive equipment to do it. Proof of work, because of this energy use, because of the way it's built, it's also kind of heavy and slow. It can't process many transactions per second. Um, it, Bitcoin, yeah, is only is about seven or eight transactions per second, which is nothing really. Proof of stake, however, works differently. On a proof of stake chain, miners are instead known as validators, as I said earlier. And instead of expending computing power to try and get chosen to add the next block to the chain, validators, yeah, they stake the blockchain's native coin. They put their money down. Um, And again, remember, I think the best way to think of this uh, is through the lottery analogy. So with proof of work, the more energy you expend, the more lottery tickets you get, the more chances you have to win. Proof of stake works similarly. In its case, the more the validators stake, the higher their chances of getting chosen. It's like, you know, that's putting more money down to buy more lottery tickets again. So proof of stake, therefore, doesn't need lots of computers uh, running, you know, hashing all the time. The winner of the lottery is instead chosen at random. And this means, as you can probably guess, this uh, drastically lowers the amount of energy that a proof-of-stake chain consumes. I mean, it's 99.9% less. It's a negligible amount of energy, really, in the grand scheme of things, to run a proof-of-stake blockchain. But people with more moolah or more... Yeah, yeah, and Coin this, or whatever. yeah, this is this is the big this get is rewarded the big, more frequently. Yeah, exactly. This is the this is the problem that um, you know proof of uh, proof of work lovers Bitcoiners will will raise about proof of stake, and it's a very valid point. You know, okay, uh, what happens if someone it, it, it gives a lot of power to to, to those the with whales? Money. Yeah, to the whales. Proof of stake. Uh, it is much faster, a higher tra- a higher TPS score, more transactions per second. Um, because it's not relying on all this heavy computing power to be done. And it has, as a result, become by far the most popular blockchain consensus model. And this is especially in terms, going back to this energy usage again, this is especially as uh, ESG, environmental, social and governance concerns, have come to shape investor behavior, especially big investors. Um, And nowadays, if you're a big institution wanting to invest, you have to have an eye on, on ESG. 
And obviously, a lot of people say, well, because Bitcoin uses so much electricity, it's therefore bad for the planet. And that ignores the fact that a lot of that electricity comes from renewable sources. It ignores the fact that uh, Bitcoin mining has become a lot more energy efficient. Um, but I'm not going to fall down that rabbit hole because I think I've spoken about this before. Now, as you say, Mike, the concerns uh, are that uh, proof of stake is not as decentralized or as secure as proof of work because the, the higher stake, higher chance model means that those who are able to stake more are basically able to get selected to validate a block and claim the reward more. So, and for instance, in, in order to become a validator on Ethereum, you need to stake 32 ETH. Mm. I mean, that is hundreds of thousands of dollars which is not you know not money that n most people have on some other proof of stake chains uh, the barrier to entry is even higher you know that the the um the minimum uh, stake to become a validator can be hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of of the particular coin and also in some cases you need you need pretty up to date hardware as well you need pretty expensive hardware so again, this raises the concerns around centralization. How can you call something decentralized if only a handful a select of few people, of people who can afford it? Can yeah, do it. yeah. And of course, staking can be very profitable because you get a cut of um, you get a you you stand a chance to win these block rewards, and you also get network fees as well. Now there are ways that the you know the man or woman in the street can participate in a proof of stake blockchain. You can you can actually uh, you can actually delegate. Um, so you can or you can um, you can put money into a staking pool, which means you basically lend your money, lend your ETH, for instance, to someone else, and they will uh, in order that they can uh, run a validator themselves. So let's say there's a group of us, none of us have 32, the 32 ETH required to become a validator. But if we pooled all that together, then we'd have enough to run a validator node. And then we could obviously split up um, any. any any money that we earn from that. A bit like a, a bit like a lottery syndicate, I guess. You know, everyone clubs together, they buy loads of tickets and they split any winnings. Hmm. And so it is possible for, you know, for, for non-whales to stake as well. But there are still a lot of a lot of concerns around centralization with proof of stake. And but as I said, that hasn't stopped it becoming much really really popular for a whole load of reasons not least environmental concerns but also speed as well and it was these concerns around speed and scalability that got Vitalik interested in proof of stake and since kind of 2017 2018 he's been working to move ethereum onto a proof of stake model now as you can imagine for a project that has gotten as big as ethereum with so much going on that is not easy. Uh, and this is why uh, the switch over to proof of stake has been going on for, I mean, for years now. They've been working on this, as I say, since kind of 2017, 18. So what's that, you know, over four years now. But it's a necessary one, though. Ethereum is so dominant, so many projects are building on it that it needs to be able to scale. It can't go on the way it is. And this slowness has made it unusable at times. When and, the fees get too high. Yeah, yeah. And that's exactly what I wanted to, to, to mention at this point, actually. Gas fees. Because if you'll remember, in order to in order to use to in order to transact on the Ethereum network, let's say I want to send some ETH to you, I have to pay a fee for the miners on the network to to process that transaction that that's kind of a reward for their computing power and that's a part of the reason a part of the way uh, that miners on a proof of network network that's part of how they earn their crust if you like now the problem is that uh, when there are so many people trying to transact when there are so many transactions queuing up to Just get to loads of kittens Load, yeah, when so many people are trying to trying to buy and sell and breed digital cats, there's this huge backlog of uh, of transactions waiting to go through, and what happens is that some people are uh, who are willing to pay more, willing to pay more gas to the miners to have their transaction prioritized. It's kind of surge charge. Yeah, yeah, and what this means is that the gas price gets progressively bid up. And so in order to in order to get your transaction processed, the f you at times have to pay an absolutely exorbitant fee and gas prices on Ethereum have become insane. Not all the time. It is still possible to transact relatively cheaply on Ethereum, 
but um, at times of high demand, forget it. And a recent example, let's go back to NFTs again. You mentioned the Board Ape Yacht Club. So recently, um, the Board Ape Yacht Club um, start, uh, held a sale of virtual land for its for its metaverse project, which is called Other Side. And demand for these virtual land NFTs, which is how the virtual land was sold, was just insane. And I thought there was actually a there was actually a, an article um, here in the Guardian, you know, in the mainstream press, uh, that reported that one user had bought two NFTs for a total of £9,000. I mean, that's, what's that, $11,000 or something? Uh, that's what the NFTs had cost them. The gas in order to execute these transactions was £11,000. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, I think, the, I, think that, I think that silence says it all. It's insane. And, but, I mean, at a time like this when uh, you, you might say, well, why on earth would anyone, would anyone do this? Well, at a time like this, there's a limited number of these NFTs being sold. Uh, there's a lot of demand for them. And some people, most people, would look at that and go, forget it. You know, I don't want it that badly. But other people would be like, yeah, I want one of these NFTs. I think I they're going to be worth it. I mean, it's the same with, you know, you see these supreme shop drops. And there is a, you know, a fire extinguisher with supreme written on it. Mm. And, and it's like £5,000. And you're like, what? Yeah. But someone buys it and it's instantly worth £50,000. Yeah. Yeah. The and second uh, it was, it was the second market or whatever it's called is just crazy for these things. And there's people out there willing to pay it. It's kind of like art, I suppose, in the same way that, you know. Yeah. I've got the actual Mona Lisa or I've got a print. Yeah. What's, yeah. One is, <laughs> one is going to be worth it. It's mental, but us, we, you know, we've created this mentality. Yeah. I mean, it's human behavior, isn't mm. it? It's it, when there's a, when there's a frenzy, when there's a feeding frenzy, um, people are willing to pay these insane gas costs. These gas costs get bid up to, yeah, just eye watering degree. And, um, yeah, so this is, this is like, a, this is a bad look for Ethereum. No one really wants this situation to continue. And the story of the last few years has Apart been, from the miners. Apart from the miners, yeah, who are doing <laughs> doing pretty well out of it. Um, but yeah, so the last few years, Ethereum has been largely about moving over to proof of stake and Ethereum 2.0, which we're not allowed to call it. Now, the way that Ethereum is is eventually going to solve this problem, if you like, is... You should call it Re-Ethereum. Re-Ethereum, I like it. Vitalik, if you're listening, there you are. Mm. Yeah, okay. I'm sure he's scribbling frantically <laughs> on a pad. Um this Ethereum uh, 2, 2.0, is going to employ a technique which is known as sharding. Okay? Now, this is actually, uh, this, this is something that existed before blockchain. But this is to, the burning of... No, this isn't burning. This is slightly different. So, this basically uh, will see a group, in Ethereum's case, of 64 additional blockchains known as shard chains run in parallel to the main Ethereum chain. Okay, so it's basically like imagine, you, you know, you've got your blockchain, which is very slow because it's very congested. So it's basically kind of siphoning off all this activity onto these separate chains. It's like, I guess, if you're if you're building a road, uh, you know, a one lane, a, a one lane road and it gets congested, you just build more lanes so as more cars can travel down it. That's basically what mm. sharding is, uh, adding extra blockchains. Now, uh, this the main Ethereum chain, which is uh, which the main Ethereum proof of stake chain, which has been launched, is going to be is is the Beacon chain. So this is going to be where this is going to be, if you like, at the heart of Ethereum. But these shard chains will take a lot of the pressure off of the Beacon chain, but they will occasionally submit an updated report of their status to the Beacon chain, so as the whole network can be updated. Now, the beacon chain itself has actually it actually shipped on the 1st of December 2020. And this introduced proof of stake to Ethereum and marked the first stage of the transition. So this this transition is very much underway. The next stage is the merge. And this is where the current Ethereum mainnet will merge with the beacon chain. And Ethereum at that point will cease altogether to be a proof of work network. OK, so the merge is the next big thing on the horizon as we speak. Now, it was originally scheduled. Well, no, it's been kind of put back a lot. It was scheduled for early 2022, but has since been pushed back to Q3 or Q4. 
now. So kind of towards in, in the second half of the year. And this has become a bit of a running joke in the crypto community mm. about how long the switch to, you know, the merge is taking. Um, and the final stage, the introduction, the actual introduction of shard chains, that is scheduled for 2023, assuming the merge happens this year. And that should mark the end of Ethereum's transition. But we are still waiting. Now, I... I what about I, those holding the original Ethereum? Well, <laughs> well, there isn't going to be... I mean, that's, that's a good no, point. No, the one from where the, there was that breach... Oh, Ethereum Classic. Yeah. yeah. No one, not many people are talking about Ethereum Classic. Yet. It's going to be, yeah, I don't think Ethereum Classic. It's like having is, a, is a BlackBerry. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, you still got ETH Classic, eh? Good on you. Um, now, this is from the Ethereum website. Um, I, I, I was trying to find a way to express why we can't say Ethereum 2.0 anymore. So I'll just, I'll just say what the website says. So, quote, after merging ETH1 and ETH2 into a single chain, there will no longer be two distinct Ethereum networks. There will, be only, there will only be one Ethereum. So to limit confusion, the community has updated these terms. ETH1 is now the execution layer. ETH2 is now the consensus layer. Consensus. Which handles proof-of-stake consensus. Mm. Okay. And there were additional, there were a few kind of additional uh, points around why we couldn't say ETH ETH two. One one of it one of it uh, pertained to scammers because a lot of scammers were sort of getting in touch with people saying, hey, you know, Ethereum's transitioning. Well, you can swap your ETH one for ETH two here. <laughs> Just <laughs> send it to this address and bye bye money. Oh, funny. <sighs> not if you're not if you've been scammed. Yeah. So, were you yawning there? Yeah. Okay. That's good to know. So Ethereum has un undergone several network upgrades in order to pave the way for proof of stake. Um, the most important one recently was the London upgrade. That was back in uh, August 2021. London upgrade implemented a number of Ethereum improvement proposals or EIPs. Um, you done with EIP? Yeah. Um, that, yeah. That's pretty self-explanatory, isn't yeah. it? An Ethereum improvement proposal. It's like, I have an idea of how to improve Ethereum. The most significant of these in the London upgrade was EIP-1559, and this made changes to Ethereum's gas fee structure. And one of the most important aspects of this change was that a portion of gas fees would, would from that point on, be, be burnt. burned. Yeah, and removed from circulation altogether. And because there's no total number, is there? There's no that's end right, game yeah. Room. Ethereum doesn't have, ETH doesn't have a fixed supply, like unlike Bitcoin. Bitcoin... Mm. Obviously, 21 million BTC will be mined, and that's it. Ethereum has no fixed supply. And this had a lot of people concerned, well, you know, how is an asset that's its supply is constantly increasing? Worth how is that? Yeah, how is that going to hold its value? And, I mean, you know, Ethereum is, ETH is so useful for using the Ethereum network that, you know, it's always going to have, I think, the, the demand, um, even if there is a large supply. But the fact that so, so much of it is now being burned, so many of these gas fees are being burned, um, has raised the possibility that with enough network activity, ETH could become deflationary. Okay, so mm. and that has that has you know pretty serious implications, uh, potential implications for the price of ETH as well. You know, a lot of people saying, well, you know, if this asset becomes deflationary and demand stays the same, if if supply decreases and demand remains the same or Can't increases, they just put a little proposal goes, proposition to go. Okay, cool, we'll burn less. Uh, I suppose they could, but I don't think... If it's be... burning too much. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, you could argue that uh, they want it to become deflationary. Yeah, yeah. It makes it more valuable. It more valuable. Um, there is always going to be new ETH being created. But um, it's that but ratio it's that needs burn. to be tweaked. Yeah. And, yeah, there's as, as we speak, there is a lot of anticipation around the merge and proof of stake. Now, a lot of people think that as soon as the merge happens, gas fees are going to go down, you know, to, to very little and everything will be fine. It's it's not that simple. This is such a big this is such a big transition. This is such a big project um, that it's going to take a while. And, you know, not until we've got shard chains, really, and even probably a bit beyond the introduction of sharding. It's going to be a while before Ethereum, you know, you can uh, gas is going to cost, you know, a few cents um, like it does on some other uh, proof of stake chains. But we're getting there. We're getting there. Let's take another break, shall we?
This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best informed business reporters around the world. Western nations like the U.S. and Europe. Mexico will likely have its first female president. And then you have China. And help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters. He'll get his yo-yos to Europe in time. But the longer this drags on, the more worry he's getting. They knew that they needed to do this as fast as they possibly could to get a drug on the market as fast as they could. I'm David Gura. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. We cover the stories behind what's moving money and markets. Basically, everyone was expecting, if not a calamity, certainly a recession. But the problem is that that paperwork, as our reporting showed, is fake. As someone who's covering the market, I'm often very worried about an imminent collapse. I'm thinking about it quite often. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the backseat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Hey. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. This is Neil Strauss host of the Tenderfoot TV true crime podcast, To Live and Die in L.A. I'm here to tell you about the new podcast I've been undercover investigating for the last year and a half. It's called To Die For. Here's a clip. All these girls were sent out into the world and they were told, try to meet important men, try to attach yourself to important men. The voice you're hearing is a Russian model agent telling me about spies sent out to seduce men with political power. The war in Ukraine is also being fought by all these girls that are all over important cities. For the first time, a military-trained seduction spy reveals how the Russian government turned sex and love into a deadly weapon. If you want to kill your target, it's easy. You just seduce him, take him somewhere, start having sex and then he's very vulnerable so you can kill him easily. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back for part three of this episode of Ethereum. This yep. is this is it for Ethereum. 
not really, but for, well, no, for the, not, the not, pod yeah. for yeah. for the podcast. Yeah, I think we've uh, I think we've covered this ad nauseum. Okay, so. I just want to quickly talk about something that's um, uh, something that's come up again in response to these uh, scaling issues that Ethereum has and the kind of slow rollout of this proof of stake that's attracted a lot of criticism. So, at, and as I say, at times of high demand, as we know, the network is pretty much unusable unless you're prepared to pay insane gas fees. But recently, we've seen the emergence of some projects that make uh, that use uh, make, basically make using Ethereum easier, and these are known as Layer Two. Mm. Layer two scaling solutions to give them their to give them their full title. Obviously, Ethereum being a layer one. Uh, layer twos um, and some examples here: Polygon, Optimism, Arbitrum are all examples of layer two projects. They're built on top of Ethereum, um, but they use their own chains to compute transactions off the main Ethereum chain. Uh, and they they reference the main Ethereum chain for security purposes, but take you know the transactional strain off of it. And this obviously allows for faster and cheaper transactions than would be possible on the main chain. Uh, and these have become a very uh, a very useful stopgap uh, whilst we wait for whilst we wait for shard chains and proof of stake in general. And these layer twos, uh, like shard chains, they can uh, periodically submit summaries of their data to the main chain to keep the whole you know the whole network updated. Um, but they've they've been useful to take some of the strain off the main Ethereum network. Um, so that said, it's still it's still often slow and expensive to use. You know, these layer twos have helped, but they haven't solved the problem. Um, and again, as we've seen, these kind of rival layer ones have taken advantage of this situation to make some inroads into Ethereum's market share. Um, but none of them have so far come close to mounting a serious challenge to Ethereum's dominance. And I'm going to go as far as to say that if the move to proof of stake is completed relatively soon and without any disasters happening along the way, then it's for, for me, it's kind of hard to see how Ethereum could be toppled. Uh, it's not impossible. I mean, it could it could still happen. But Ethereum is is so dominant, you know, even and, and it, it does surprise me in a way, even though it can become so unusable, even though the Ethereum experience can be can be pretty miserable sometimes if, if you're, you know, if you're trying to pile into, you know, some hot new NFT project or something like that. Despite all this, people are still building on it. It's it has so much use. And I, I, I struggle to see how another project is going to is going to take that away, certainly in the short term. It, it must it, it, it's going to be a very long term thing to try and chip away at Ethereum's at Ethereum's lead. I mean, um, I think the future, like anyone who imagines that the, that the future of crypto is going to be, you know, sort of one chain to rule them all and thing like that is wrong. I think there are there are going to be lots of different blockchains. Um, there are lots of other, you know, cryptocurrency blockchains that do different things. It's not all about Bitcoin and then a whole load of layer twos. You know, there are lots of cryptos that do different things. Um, but it's going to be interesting to see how this kind of layer one landscape shapes up and, you know, whether some layer ones will kind of specialize in, you know, in, in kind of some aspects, you know, maybe maybe one or, or two blockchains will emerge as kind of the blockchains for NFTs or something like that. Mm. Uh, maybe one particular blockchain or, or a small handful of them will be where most of, you know, decentralized finance kind of eventually finds itself. But it's it's so difficult to predict how this how this might pan out, and so the you know the easiest thing for the moment is to say, well, it's it's still very much the ball is still very much in Ethereum's court, and obviously it has this kind of network effects, you know, this first mover advantage. It's built up so much activity uh, that it's going to be very difficult for another project to to overtake that. And the, these rival projects, and I'm going to use the examples of Cardano and Polkadot here, they have kind of gone about it a different way you know rather than ethereum kind of launched it's like this is what we can do and they've been trying to basically correct it as they go along ever since these other projects are sort of starting you know having learned the lessons of what has happened before on ethereum they're building these supposedly much more resilient networks that should theoretically be able to scale to handle ethereum's volume 
Um, most of these are still very much in development. Yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, Polkadot is an interesting one. Polkadot's, uh, Polkadot uses something, um, its main chain is called the relay chain. And then it has what are called parachains, which are these kind of separate blockchains that work in a kind of similar way to shards. And the Polkadot network is in the middle of um, kind of rolling these these parachains out and pr various projects. Each parachain is going to is 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 reserved for one particular project. And at the moment, it's conducting what are called parachain slot auctions in order for you know whichever projects are building on Polkadot, uh, they you know they're basically bidding to get a parachain slot. And that's how that's going to work. But so the Polkadot network is is growing. Um, Cardano is doing it slightly differently. Um, Cardano is basically a peer reviewed project. So rather than kind of put the network out there and see what happens, they've been building it painstakingly for years now. Every stage is being peer reviewed. You know, it's going out to all these various developers and scientists and people like that to look over. Uh, with the hope that you know when it's when it's up and fully functioning, they will have spotted every potential problem and it'll you know run like ethereum uh, like we'd all like ethereum to run mm. um but obviously this is you know this is a slow process smart contracts have only been enabled on cardano for a few months uh they're still kind of rolling out dapps there are lots of projects building on it but they're still you know it's still very much in development so that is the kind of landscape at the moment. Ethereum is Ethereum is the daddy in that particular niche of cryptocurrency. There are lots of projects lining up to try and take its crown, to try and take it down. Uh, but Ethereum, uh, yeah, this this change to proof of stake, this change to Ethereum two that we're not allowed to call it, is uh, and it's 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 a huge it's it's a huge factor in in the whole crypto space at the moment. Really, everyone is kind of uh, waiting Guessing. on yeah, yeah waiting on on this to happen. And yeah, I want to finish up by saying. Um, you know, Ethereum is, is is capturing the public imagination more and more. You know, it's not just all the stuff that's happening on it. It's not just the fact that Vitalik is such a uh, is such a prominent figure in crypto and beyond. I think as well, he was on the cover of Time magazine recently. You know, he really is becoming a kind of global figure. And um, you'll remember that a few times during these Ethereum episodes, I've uh, referenced a couple of books. One was the Cryptopians by Laura Shin, and the other one was the Infinite Machine by Camilla Russo. Uh, and uh, the Infinite Machine was actually the first. Both of them are about the early days of Ethereum. Well, um, the Infinite Machine has just been optioned. Uh, the film rights have just been bought by uh, Ridley Scott's company. We talk about a blockbuster. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. On that note, let's end it. Because there's a blockchain. Yeah, yeah that's, that's quite enough. Bye. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. See you soon. Thank you so much for listening to the Coin Bureau podcast. If you'd like to learn more about cryptocurrency, you can visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com forward slash Coin Bureau. You can also go to coinbureau.com for loads more information about all things crypto. You can follow me on Twitter at, at Coin Bureau, all one word. And I'm also active on TikTok and Instagram as well. Uh, first of all, uh, it's not thank you for listening. You're welcome for great content. Yeah, like this is free. And they're learning about a fairly great topic in a non-boring way. If you'd like to visit me and hear more about me, go to Moochabout, M-O-O-C-H-A-B-O-U-T, or else. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Coin Bureau Podcast is a production of iHeartRadio. It's brand new, season two. 
I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take D.C., We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Check the backseat. Check the backseat. All right, Check the backseat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. 